last week I preached a sermon based on the fifth trumpet, and um, <clears throat> I got a lot of feedback, and thank you for the feedback. Uh, you know, I always welcome uh, feedback, and uh, you know, even if we don't see eye to eye on some issues, we can still have a conversation, amen? We can agree to disagree, and, and I, I always welcome that conversation. And so, um, as I <clears throat> was talking last time, I showed to you from the fifth trumpet, um, actually we started in the fourth trumpet with the French Revolution and how that darkness, that smoke that comes out of the abyss, uh, that darkness that is covering the world today, uh, symbolizes uh, secularism and how secularism is advancing in our society today and how it's actually pushing very hard especially right now in the United States and uh, I showed to you a lot of different quotes how secularism actually this ideology um, is starting from schools and universities and, and infiltrates our schools and universities and so <clears throat> I, I, I showed to you that history of secularism and how it's advancing but the question is, how, all, how will all this end, right? That's the final question. And today we're going to look at the final conflict of this Earth's history and how everything will end. Um, all these radical ideologies will eventually, as I said in the last sermon, I, as where I want to start where I left off last time, I said all these uh, radical ideologies will eventually lead to a reaction and it will lead to a pushback from the radical right, which will go to extreme. And this is when uh, all these final events of this Earth's history will unfold right before our eyes. This is when Protestantism will unite with Catholicism and will form that alliance against secular ideologies. And this will bring setting up that system that we'll talk today, the image to the beast, that will be that persecuting power, that union of church and state that will force state religion like in the Middle Ages. And so I want you to be very clear. If you misunderstood me last time, I want to explain it again to you. I believe, and looking at all the prophecies in the book of Revelation, uh, that advancement of secularism is just helping to set the stage for the last conflict. Did you hear what I said? Is just helping to set the stage. Advancement of secularism itself is not going to bring the final conflict. It has to be the union of Protestant American Catholicism. But everything that is happening right now, the hard push from the left of secularism, will set up the stage for that to come up. And this is what we're going to look today in, in the sermon to see how that is going to happen. And so, <clears throat> do we have uh, this... Uh, uh, on the screen. I need, I need people to see the screen. <clears throat> I want you to go with me to Revelation chapter 13, and we'll read only two verses there. Revelation 13 is a, is a complicated chapter. We can probably spend two, three sessions in there, but I, I would like to just talk about these two verses. And it says there, <clears throat> he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive what? A mark on their right hand and on their foreheads. And verse 17, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the, uh, or the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
Now, first, before we move on, we, because we don't have much time, I'm going to go quickly through this. We need to identify the players in this last conflict of Earth's history. Who will be involved in this conflict? Well, verses 1 to 10 in Revelation, uh, we have the beast from the sea, one that comes out from the sea. A beast in the Bible represent, uh, they symbolize nations, kingdoms, organizations. And, and uh, so looking at all the identifying characteristics of the sea beast in Revelation chapter 13, and then comparing it to Daniel chapter 7, we establish that this beast represents the medieval church. In other words, the, the Catholic church. And let me show you a quick comparison here between Daniel chapter 7 where it talks about the little horde and the sea beast in Revelation chapter 13. You see it very clearly. First, it says in, Revel uh, in Daniel 7, this little horn in verse 25, he shall speak pompous words or blasphemous words against the Most High. In Revelation 13 verse 6, the sea beast uh, opened his mouth and, and did what? And blasphemy against God is exactly the same. So we have that comparison. Then we, we see the second line, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. That's the little horn. Uh, and then in verse 7 of Revelation 13, it was uh, granted to him, to the sea beast, to make war with whom? With the saints. So we see that comparison. Uh, it, it's very clear. The third one, it says, it tells us the time, how long this little horde will persecute the saints. And in Daniel chapter 7, it says the time and times and half a time. And in, Reve in Revelation 13 verse 5, it says 42 months. If you put those together and you calculate those, it's the same period, 1260 years of persecution. And so, then the last one, it says, and it shall intend to do what? To change times and laws. That's Daniel 7 verse 25. And when we come to the sea beast in Revelation 13 in verse 16, this is where it parallels the mark of the beast. Something that is um, in Daniel 7, it relates to the changing of times and laws is parallel to setting up or receiving the mark of the beast. And this is just to set the stage for what is going to come in our sermon today. So it's very clear when we look in history, there's no other organization or power behind this. It's the medieval church. Now, moving forward, um, in Revel in, th this is the first player in this last conflict, the medieval church. It's a reborn medieval church, and we'll talk a little bit about that. In verse 11 uh, onward, in Revelation chapter 13, we see the second player in this great conflict of, of Earth's history in the last days, which is the beast from the earth, whereas the lamb-like beast, okay? When we look at all the characteristics, and you can look at them at home and, uh, and study them, but when we look at those characteristics provided in Revelation 13 verses 11 to 18, we can clearly see that symbolically this beast from the earth or the lamb-like beast represents no other nation. It's only, the only one nation that fits is United States of America. All right? So we have these two players. We have the medieval church, the Catholic church, and then we have the United States of America. Now I want you to go to Revelation 13 and verse 14. <clears throat> 
in, in verse 14, if you follow with me there, we are told that the earth beast, who is United States, will lead the charge in creating an image to the sea beast. So what is an image? An image is an exact replica or representation of the original one. The sea beast represents the Catholic Church during the Middle Ages. All right. So now in the last days of Earth's history, the Bible tells us, the prophecy tells us that the United States will lead the charge to create an image to the sea beast. This prophecy shows us that the world powers will be seduced to create a system of state religion which will duplicate the form and behavior of the medieval church, of the sea beast. The characteristics of the final conflict will be the ultimate union of, of professed Christianity with the power of the state in order to for, force all, all people to conform to its decrees. So this lamb-like beast, which is a Christian nation, United States, will side with the sea beast to establish a religious and political union to enforce institution that characterizes medieval Christianity. So they will unite again the church and state, and they will force religious observance. Now, when we talk about this, and since as, uh, we started as a church, we've been talking about this, a lot of people tell us that we are crazy to believe that. A lot of people say this will never happen in United States. This is impossible. United States was as a nation, came up as what? Separation of church and state. That was their main thing that they started their nation based on, their foundation. So they say this will never happen. I want to show you a quote from Great Controversy, page 572, and read this carefully with me. I'm going to use a lot of quotes today because I think it's important. It's more like a presentation-style sermon today, but follow with me because this is a very important point. It says here, many urge that the intellectual and moral darkness prevailing during the Middle Ages favored the spread of her dogmas, superstitions, and oppression. The very thought that such a state of things will exist in this enlightened age is what? It's ridicule. It's a ri ridiculous idea. We are not in the dark ages anymore. In our enlightened world today, this can never happen. We will never allow this to happen. And so Ellen White writes this at the end of the 19th century, end of 1800s. And so <clears throat> she continues. A day of great intellectual darkness has been shown to be favorable to the success of papacy. It will yet be demonstrated that a day of great intellectual light is equally favorable for its success. Did you catch that? If you thought in the dark ages when people not, were not intellectual, they could be seduced in believing these ideas, she says that in the intellectual world, it will be equally favorable. Why she thinks that way? She continues, when pride and ambition are cherished, and men exalt their own theories above the word of God, then intelligence can accomplish greater harm than ignorance. Did you hear that? And we see that today. If you thought that ignorance was bad during the Middle Ages, people today setting themselves instead of God and saying, my intelligence is above God, and setting themselves aside from the Word of God, they say, I can do whatever I want. And so that is even more dangerous than the medieval uh, mentality, medieval ignorance, so to speak. 
So then she continues, thus, and I, I uh, outline those in bold because it's import, important. Thus, the false science of the 19th century. Remember what I talked about at 19th century, what starts? Secularism, okay? That's what is arising in 19th century. Uh, and so she's referring, thus, the false science of the 19th century, which undermines faith in the Bible, will prove as successful in preparing the way. Did you catch that? I just said to you, secularism will prepare the way, will set the stage for the final events. It's not yet there, but Ellen White is clearly showing that this will prepare the way for acceptance of what? The papacy, as did the withholding of knowledge in the Dark Ages. How do you like that one? This is a powerful statement that Ellen White is making, showing that even at the end of uh, 1800s, people already were thinking that way, and she wrote that this is a mis uh, misconception. We must be very careful in not to accept that. So, as I said in my last sermon, I read a quote to you about secularism becoming intolerant. And so this intolerance will result in a response from the religious establishments that will go to intolerant extremes. That's the problem. In history, we always saw intolerance. We saw during the medieval ages, we saw religious intolerance, didn't we? The Catholic Church showed religious intolerance. Then people revolted against that. They, they were tired, and French Revolution was the epitome of that revolt or revolution against uh, the religious intolerance. And then, on the other side, now they're going into the secular intolerance. And so the pushback will be again from the religious establishment and they will go back into intolerance and this is what is going to bring up all the final events. As I was preparing the sermon yesterday and working on that, I, you know, the news popped up on my computer and so one of those news popped up and it actually I included it in my sermon today. It just happened yesterday. Talking about this religious intolerance and secular intolerance and how it goes back and forth. So, we can see much intolerance today from both sides, actually. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. You guys heard about him. He's now very popular. And, and so he came yesterday in one of his speeches and said this. For many today, religious liberty is not a cherished freedom. It's often just an excuse for bigotry and can be, what, tolerated even when there is no evidence that anybody has been harmed. So when people speak their religious views today, the other side is attacking and saying, this is bigotry, homophobia, this is hate speech, and so on and so forth. And this is, if you read, uh, if you read uh, all the comments under his, this news, all the other side attacking him with exact words that I mentioned to you right now. This is bigotry. You can't talk about anymore about religious, uh, religious stuff. So he continues. The question we face is whether our society will be inclusive enough to tolerate people with unpopular religious beliefs. Are we as a society today inclusive enough? <laughs> I don't think so. Intolerance is so prevalent in our world today. You can see that very clearly. And you can see it on both sides, intolerance. But one side is pushing really, really hard. 
if you express your religious beliefs, which is your right for, in the Constitution, you have the freedom to choose what you believe. And if you express them, then you're a bigot. I'll tell you the... the <laughs> I shouldn't probably, but I will. <laughs> I'll tell you the context of this, of, this, uh, of this statement. He was talking about a traditional marriage between a man and a woman. And he said, in our society today, to just say that a marriage should be between a man and a woman, people call it bigotry. And then he continued with his statement. So that is the context of this statement. But it's not just that. Anything you say based on the Bible, people say, hate speech, hate speech. If you just express your religious views, which are protected by the Constitution. And so, once again, this is done on purpose to create a conflict, to create a crisis. Because when a crisis comes, people will be willing to accept anything. And that's how... It will happen, the last conflict will take place. People are more willing to accept anything if there is a big crisis. And the big crisis is working itself up right now to create a much, much bigger one. So I included that there just for your... It's happening right now, uh, what's happening in our world today. So let's move on in Revelation. So we looked at Revelation 13, verse 14. I want you to skip to verse 16, and this is where we come to, uh, to what we started in our sermon today. <clears throat> So, in verse 16, we see this system, the, uh, the system, this image of the beast that is a union between Catholicism and American Protestantism. We see this system at work. We read that the new system created by the coalition between the sea beast and the earth beast will force everyone to do what? Receive a mark on their right hand and their forehead. So the question is, what is this mark? Let me put a few things for you uh, on, the, on the screen. The basic idea of mark or a seal uh, in the Bible is ownership. When you place the mark, you showed ownership. Um, the mark of the beast identifies those who belong to the beast, and the seal of God identifies those who belong to God. Ownership. Uh, the seal and the mark serve as identification. Uh, the people living at the time of the end will, will fall into one of two groups. The worshipers of the true God having the seal of God, and we talked about this in Sabbath school, just two groups, or the worshipers of the beast having its mark. This, this comes from a, an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel chapter 9. If you have time at home, you can read it. We're not going to go through that. In Ezekiel chapter 9, uh, and um, a divine being, an angel, uh, Ezekiel sees an angel, and he goes through Jerusalem before the judgment on Jerusalem comes. He goes through Jerusalem and marks the, the faithful people of God. Because when the destruction of Jerusalem comes, that mark will be an identification. Remember another time in history of Israel when a mark was an identification? The blood on the doorpost. This house is marked with the blood. It's protected. The same idea is here. This person belongs to me, says God, because it has the seal of God. You can identify this person by the seal of God, and they are protected. 
because of that. So this is the basic idea of um, the seal and mark in, in, the, in, the, in the Bible. So there is this definite choice that all of us have today and will have, especially in the last days. And this is how I entitled my sermon, Marked or Sealed. That's the choice. There's only two groups, ones that have the mark, one that have the seal. So the question for you to answer is which side you would like to be on when that final conflict comes to fruition. The Bible clearly explains that everyone who accepts Christ is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Let me show you what happens in the New Testament. In Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were what? Sealed for the day of redemption. So who is doing the sealing? Is the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the mark of the Holy Spirit. And 2 Timothy 2.19 really um, summarizes to us what the seal of God is. It says, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this, this seal. And what is the seal? The Lord knows those who are his. Very simple. God knows his people. They belong to him because they have the seal of God. This is what the seal of God is. And as I said, it shows ownership, identification. But in the last days, there will be an additional meaning to, the, to this. It will be a protection. Uh, the seal of God, or the, uh, it, will sh it will protect people in the, in the final judgment in the last days. In, the Reve in Revelation, the seal of God consists of the names of the Lamb and the Father written upon the forehead, says Revelation 14, verse 9. And the mark of the beast consists of the name of the beast written upon the foreheads of people. And Revelation 13, 17 tells us that in order to identify the mark of the beast, we need to know its name. And let me show to you in... Um, uh, this is Revelation 13, verse 17, but this is New Living Translation. In, in, in the New King James and other translations, it's, uh, it's not as correct as this one. This is the correct translation. And I'll show you the difference. And it says, no, And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. What is the difference with the New King James Version? The New King James Version says this, uh, And no one could buy or sell anything who has the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So th here, the mark actually is identified with the name and the number. In other, in other, in other, uh, in other words, the mark, if, if we know the name of the beast and the number of the beast, we will know what the mark is. So looking at the text of Revelation 13, I'm not going to go anywhere else. Uh, in the beginning, I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you a little bit later. But looking at Revelation 13, what is the name of this beast? I, I often miss that, but we already read it once, and let me show it to you. Revelation 13, verse 1 says what? And on his heads was what? Blasphemous name. So what is the name of this beast? It has a name of blasphemy. That's the name of the beast. Blasphemy in the Bible is identified with what? With two claims. Number one is what? Claim to forgive sins. You have the right to forgive sins. And the second one is what? Claim to be God. Both, Jesus was accused of both those things. And, and the Pharisees said, blasphemy. He's speaking blasphemy. So this, this beast from, you know, 
this is the name of it. Uh, it's blasphemy. It identifies itself with those two things. So now, <clears throat> do we see that we identify the Catholic Church to be that beast? So do we see that in Catholic Church? Absolutely. The Catholic Church claims that it has the power to forgive sins through confession, right? And then the second one, it claims that the head of the church, the poet, is what? Is equal to God. Uh, the Pope is God here on earth. So the mark points out that the beast claims to have the power and authority of God here on earth. And let me show you something, uh, some claims. Throughout history, a lot of popes, I'm not going to uh, give to you quotes from other uh, references, but just from the popes themselves, what they say about themselves. Uh, Cardinal Sarto, he became Pope Pius X. He says this, the pope represents what? Jesus Christ himself. Is that claiming to be God? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in 1302, Pope Boniface said in the letter to the Catholic Church, and he says this, Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for what? For salvation. This is a very strong, strong statement. That every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff, which is the Pope. So what they say is this. You cannot be saved if you're not subject to the papacy. Is that a strong claim? Absolutely. Let me show you two more quickly here. Pope Leo the, uh, the 13th said in regards to the Pope, we hold upon the earth the place of God Almighty. I don't think there is any stronger statement than this. And to show the blasphemous name of this beast. He also said, but the supreme teacher, uh, teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff, union of minds, therefore, requires together with a perfect accord, obedience of will to the church and to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. Obedience to the church and to the pope as to God himself. Strong words. They come from the mouth of popes themselves. So that's the name of the beast. It has a blasphemous name. Now, there is another way to look at the name of the beast. Uh, a name in the Bible stands for character. The Bible, Bible tells us that the law is the reflection of God's character, isn't it? God's law is the reflection of his character. So the reception of the mark of the beast and the seal of God denotes conformity to the character of Satan or to the character of God. So when the demand to receive the mark on the right hand and foreheads, um, we have only one um, passage in the Old Testament that is an allusion. Uh, this verse, this text, is an allusion to something in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. In there, the Jews literally, uh, they were commanded to have the commandments as a sign on their hands and their foreheads, if you read Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. Now the Jews took this very literally. Have you guys seen this before? Phylacteries. So God says, have the commandments on your forehead and on, on your hand, which means that, you know, it has to affect your mind and your action. That's what it, it means, really. But the Jews took this very literally, and they had little black boxes, as you see them here, and they would put them on their foreheads and then on their hands right here, and they carried the Ten Commandments inside of those little boxes. 
took this literally to the extremes, but what God was saying to them in the Old Testament and what he's saying in Revelation 13, that in the last conflict of this earth's history, something related to the Ten Commandments will take the center stage. Something that is written on our foreheads, which is the commandments of, it's the name of God, but the commandments are identifying God's character, which is his name. So this suggests that demand of the beast to have the mark on the right hand or the forehead stands in contrast to God's commandments. And so we see that, that in the last conflict of this earth's history, the Ten Commandments, specifically the first four commandments, will be the ones that will be attacked. So let me show it to you from Revelation chapter 13 how that happens. There are four different things that show us that the beast, the sea beast, will attack the, the, four, the first four commandments that deal with relationship with God. First, the beast demands for worship, which is reserved only for whom? For God alone. That's the first commandment, right? If you don't worship the beast, then they demand worship. And so that's the direct attack on the first commandment. Second, the raising... Sorry. The second one is the raising... uh, Let me go back here. I think I went too far. Yeah. Second one is the raising up of an image is a direct attack on the second commandment. The third one is the blasphemy uh, of God is an attack on the third commandment. And the fourth one is what? The demand for receiving the mark of the beast indicates a direct attack on the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. So when you put all of those together, you can clearly see that the mark of the beast is attacking God's commandments. It stands opposite to God's commandments, and especially opposite to one of those commandments, which is the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment stands in opposition to the mark of the beast. The Sabbath will become the testing truth in the final crisis because it deals with the issue of proper worship. The Sabbath is an external sign of belonging to the true God and the special relationship between God and his people. And the sign, and and when we look at that, I want to show you two texts in the Bible. Ezekiel 20, verse 12 and 20, it says this, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a what? A sign between them and me, that they might know that I am what? The Lord who sanctifies them. In verse 20, Hallow my Sabbath, says God, and they will be what? A sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Remember a seal or a sign here? It's interchangeable here. It shows belonging. So when we have the Sabbath as the sign, it shows that the Lord is our God. So it shows that we belong to God. It shows that we identify with God because we keep the Sabbath. God established the Sabbath at creation. And so we see that in Exodus 31, verses 16 to 17, it says there, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generation as a perpetual covenant. It is what? A sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and and on the seventh day he rested. So once again, the the Bible goes back to to the creation when it talks about the Sabbath, that God rested on the seventh day. And the Sabbath is the sign of God's authority. Now, this is the important point that I want you to remember. The Sabbath 
is the sign of God's authority. When he created the world, he set the Sabbath of creation as his authority. Now the sea beast has counterfeited God's sign of authority with their own sign of authority. Remember, a seal or a mark shows what? Authority or ownership. If God has his mark of authority, the sea beast needed its own mark of authority. And let me read this quickly for you. Some of you have seen this before. The converts catechism of Catholic doctrine. Once again, it comes straight from the Catholic Church. It doesn't come from me or anybody else. There is a question there. It says, which is the Sabbath day? And what do they answer? Saturday is the Sabbath day. And the question is, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? And what do they say? We observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Once again, this establishes the authority. That's all I wanted to, for you to see in this quote. And, and the next quote actually clarifies that. It's a Catholic doctrine, uh, catechism, doctrinal catechism. It says, question, have you any other way of proving the church has power to institute festivals or precepts? And what do they say? The first thing. Had she not such power or authority, she could not have done that in which all modern religious agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of what? Saturday the 7th, a change for which there is what? No scriptural authority. They are very clear about that. They say, well... Only God can change scripture if he wanted to because he has the authority. He gave us those precepts, but he did not. There is no authority in the Bible to change the day from the seventh day Sabbath to Sunday. But because they say we have such power, we have such authority, that's how we prove that we have authority, by the change of Saturday to Sunday. So that's the authority that we're talking here. And they claim to have that authority. Now, it's very clear from the Bible and from history that the mark of the beast, especially, it talks about the commandments, as, as, as uh, um, the mark of the beast is counterfeit of God's commandments, but especially the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath. Now, a lot of people ask me the question, are those people that keep the Sunday today, do they have the mark of the beast? Uh, this is from uh, Stefanovich's book, Revelation of Jesus Christ. This is very important for us as Adventists to remember, not to point fingers at people that keep Sunday and say, you have the mark of the beast now, you belong to the beast and things like that. It says there, and I agree with him, he says no one will receive the mark of the beast until what? Religious legislation is passed enforcing the substitute Sabbath. No one has the mark of the beast at this time. When Sunday keeping is enforced by civil law, every person must then choose between their allegiance to God by keeping the Sabbath according to the commandments of God or allegiance to the beast by keeping the day substituted by man's authority. No one has the mark of the beast today, and I want you to remember that. When Sunday will be enforced by civil laws, this is when people will have to make a choice to accept or to reject. That's when people will be receiving this mark of the beast or will have the seal of God in those last days. Now, as we conclude in the next five or so minutes, I want to take you back to the uh, great controversy. This will put everything together, what I talked from last time to today. 
Um, there's quite a few quotes. I really don't like reading a lot of quotes, but this time I'll use that as a, uh, as a presentation style to show you some important points what Ellen White makes in the great controversy and uh, so to tie this up together. So let's go together and please follow through with me while I'll go quickly through this through the statements. We go to great controversy back to page five. We were in 572, now in 573. <clears throat> she says this, in the movements now in progress in the United States to secure for the institutions, once again, she's writing at the end of uh, 19th century, end of 1800s. Uh, the movements now in progress in the United States to secure for the institutions and usages of the church, the support of the state. Protestants are following in the steps of what? or papacy. Nay, more, they are opening the door for papacy to regain in Protestant America the supremacy which she has lost in the old, old world. <laughs> That's the 19th century. We're far much more ahead of that right now. And that which gives greater significance to this movement is the fact that the principal object contemplated is the enforcement of what? of Sunday, and we just talked about enforcement of the mark, the Sunday observance, a custom which originated with Rome and which she claims at the sign of her what? Authority. Remember, everything is about authority. The mark of the beast is about the authority or the character of Satan, and the seal of God is about his authority and his character. And she, the, the Roman church claims authority through that. Now, when I looked at that, I said, that, that's really nice. But then I saw... There was a note there to go to appendix. We don't really uh, look in the appendixes, but this one is great, actually. In the great controversy, uh, when, when she was talking there in the beginning about the movements now in progress, I was wondering what type of movements are those? What movements is she talking about? And so I went to the great controversy, general note, note 11, and she talks about these movements. And that's on page 688 or six, and 689 in great controversy. I'm going to mention three or four of those quotes because they're very important. So this is what she says. The movements... Remember, what are those movements? The movements are apparent under diverse forms and in different ways. But the organization which embodies almost every form and works in every way to gain its end is the National Reform Association. It proposes to have the Constitution amended in order to constitute a Christian government acknowledging God as the source of all authority and power in civil governments. Remember, there's nothing wrong, wrong about to be guided by God's authority. But when religion and state go together, that's a deadly combination. And when religion wants to force the state to acknowledge God as the supreme uh, authority, then they have power over the governments, over civil governments. And that's how re religious legislations will come up. Now she continues. And this, one's, this one was very interesting to me. National Reform Association, this is what they proposed in, at the end of uh, 1800s. First, the state has the right to command the conscience of people. That's an interesting one. <laughs> Second, government must enforce upon all that come among us the laws of Christian morality. That is a big one, enforcing Christian morality. That's how you get a Sunday law. Isn't it? If you still wonder how can people follow this and accept the Sunday law, it's exactly right here. And the third one is very interesting. <laughs> Jews and all Christians who keep the seventh day, the Sabbath, are to be classed as what? As atheists. 
and must be treated as one party with atheists who cannot dwell together on the same continent with the National Reform Christianity. Those are strong words from a religious organization. And that was at the end of uh, 1800s, and we're much further ahead right now in all this development, all right? Uh, two more of these and, and, uh, as we continue with her statement here in this note. Anybody can see at a glance that the establishment of the national reform theory of government would be but the establishment of theocracy. Now, a man-made theocracy is only a scheme of government which puts men in the place of God. This is what Ellen White says in that, uh, um, in a, that appendix. That is precisely the theory upon which the papacy was built, and that is just what the papacy is. The national reform theory is identical with that of the papacy. Therefore, the establishment of a national reform theory in it, this government will be but the what? Setting up of what? A living image of the papacy. Do you recognize Revelation 13 here? When the Protestantism will push to unite with the government, with the civil authorities, so they can push their religious legislations, this is when the image to the sea beast will be set up. Let's continue. Quickly, two more minutes here. The Christian, uh, that's the last one. The Christian statesman, is the official organ of the National Reform Association and an editorial December 11, 1884, that paper said this. And this is the one that really struck me. It says, we cordially, gladly recognize the fact that in the South American republics and in France and other European countries, the Roman Catholics are the recognized advocates of what? National what? Christianity. Um, uh, uh, so let's, let me see, did I, yeah, uh, advocates of national Christianity and stand opposed to all the proposal uh, of, of secularism. Let me go back here. So national Christianity and stand opposed to what? Secularism. Remember what I told you last time? If you still doubt that theory that we are putting it together, this, this uh, explanation of uh, revelation, it's right here. The papacy is against secularism and they stand opposed to this but how will this happen and this is what she concludes with whenever they are willing to cooperate in resisting the progress of political atheism or secularism we will gladly join hands with them these are the protestants speaking in the united states we will gladly join with the roman catholic church in resisting secularism because they saw even then that secularism was advancing and whenever protestantism gains control of the what civil power whether will with or without the aid of rome that will be but the erecting of what image of the papacy I don't really have to say much more. It's right there. It's right there. Secularism is just setting up the stage for the papacy and Protestantism to unite and respond and push hard against it. And when that happens, they will become once again intolerant and force religious legislations and religious observance, which one of them will be the observance of Sunday, the mark of the beast. It seems that most of us think that these events will happen in a distant future. <laughs> so we just relax and take it easy in our walk with Christ today. 
This is a very dangerous place to be, and it is the exact place where Satan wants us to be, to think that that's way ahead of us. We don't even need to worry about this. All the events that are happening in the world today are pointing to the, f- to the fact that we are close to the time when the final events of this earth's history will start unfolding. The stage is being, said, is being set as we speak. I believe that God is still giving us some time to get ready for that. <laughs> That's what I believe. I believe that God wants to be ready. Wants us to be ready. As we get ready, I want this question to be on your mind all the time. Marked or sealed? Am I on God's side or on the side of the enemy? I pray that we will all be sealed and all be on God's side when he comes the second time to take his faithful people home. May God bless you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for the blessing of the Sabbath. Lord, thank you for your word, for the prophetic word. You have predicted that way in advance, and you have shown this to us in the book of Revelation. But Lord, we see all these things happening today, and we ask that you please help us to be ready. Help us to prepare ourselves, our families, uh, our churches, and help us to prepare people around us to talk about this, to let them know what's happening in the world so they can be ready as well for your coming. We know that in the last days will be only two groups of people, and we want to be on your side, Lord. So help us to choose your side today so that, we are, so that if we are faced in the future with the choice to accept the mark of the beast, we can stand on a strong foundation that we have laid today. Be with all of us, Lord. May we always uh, focus on you, and we always trust you no matter what, because we know that you're in ultimate control, and you want us all to be saved. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Please remember to wait for the deacons to usher you out. Have a great rest of the Sabbath and a great week. God bless.